This week's podcast proudly brought to you by Kent Cartridge. See, I made the mistake of buying the cheapest shot shells I could find when I first started duck hunting, and I would literally I'd watch feathers fly off of birds as they gave me a middle finger and flew off unscathed. That's when I switched over to Kent, and I was bartending and waiting tables at the time in college, and money was tight, but Kent offered me a great product at a fair price, and I've never looked back. Of course, now we have uh, Fast Deal 2.0. They just released Fast Deal Plus for this upcoming season, and with Dove season on the horizon, we've got Steel Dove, and then Teal Steel for early teal season. Whatever your shotgunning needs are for this fall, Kent has you covered. You can find all of their products at kentcartridge.com. This week's show brought to you by Ducks Unlimited, an organization that I've been plugged into for, gosh, over 15 years now. From the Alaskan wilderness to the Atlantic Flyway, across America's Great Plains, and down the Mississippi Delta, Ducks Unlimited has been leading the way in wetlands conservation since 1937. The DU family has ensured the protection of over 16 million acres of waterfowl habitat. Think about that. So, come join us. You too can carry on DU's conservation legacy. Visit ducks.org to find your local event and join our volunteer team, Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands conservation. The bull had come in tight and he was screaming in dark timber. Just live there in the moment Hunted back toward camp For enough grouse to make Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. Cable Smith welcoming each and every one of you into episode 695 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Brand new stuff there from Turnpike Troubadours off their latest record. That one is called The Rut, of course. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. Uh, so thanks for dropping by. I just got back from the mountains of New Mexico, the Sangre de Cristos. Spent the better part of two weeks up there trying to place an arrow in a big bull's vitals. But alas, the streak continues. No big bull down, unfortunately. But you know what? I walked away from this hunt way less angry, upset, I guess, ticked off than in previous years when I've eaten tag soup. We were in the game, I'll tell you what, but the unit, I, and I, I much prefer backpacking in and setting up camp in the backcountry. This unit where we were had so many damn roads, so many four-wheelers, too many, two tracks is what they are. It really did feel like hunting a crowded Colorado unit and uh you know they say if you're if you're running into other hunters then you're lazy no we were walking our asses off every day uh but you know we we had to dig a little deeper and by day seven I was like you know what we're done we are done doing this and we had hunted this unit my buddy and I with uh a guide previously but the guides take you to a little honey hole where you you know you wait for the elk to come back up in the morning or in the afternoon you wait for them to come down and the hunt lasts 30 minutes cuz you ain't 
you're not catching up to an elk that has passed you in or you know in elevation or passed you you know losing elevation either way you're not catching them if they're going up or down that's where they're going and so you have to intercept them and then I don't know. It's not the way I like to hunt. I've killed my bulls midday on public land. I think that is prime time. You find, you put one to bed, you get them riled up, and then you, you sneak in and, and you kill them right there in their hell hole. Um, that's not that's not the way a lot of uh, outfitted elk hunts are, and it's not my cup of tea. But we tried to go to these spots. The guides taken us, and the amount of hunters we saw this year compared to three years ago when we were there. Oh, it was like five times as many. I don't know what happened, but uh, it's not what we expected. So used the uh, Spartan Forge app and dialed in on some places where camping was prohibited. And there's nothing on the map that says that. So we didn't realize, because that would have been the first place I would have gone if you couldn't camp there. I'd be like, well, that's where we're going to go. But uh, you didn't realize that until you actually set foot at that trailhead. It's like no overnight camping. And, uh, the places that I had earmarked the, uh, the saddles on North facing slopes and dark timber, they were three miles away from that trailhead and nobody wanted to walk that far, but we did last, uh, three and a half days. We did 15 mile days. My buddy finally tapped out. He was like, I just, I can't walk anymore. So he headed back to Texas and uh, I kept on trudging and I, I need to remember going forward that even if I'm hunting with a buddy, there there are days where I just need to hunt by myself. Like it, it's, it really resets, recalibrates me internally, uh, and I find it very peaceful, enjoyable. Just be there with a bow in hand, alone, in isolation in the mountains. And I'm not saying I want to do it every day, like I said, or or I even want to do a, a completely solo hunt. I've tried that before. After about day seven that got a little monotonous not having seen another human being in in a week uh i would prefer to have a buddy in camp in the evenings but some days just need to tackle the mountains alone um could have shot a cow the last day could have shot a a raghorn one day but you know i paid the tags were expensive and i have no interest in packing out i'm not destitute for meat um so I, you know, I wasn't gonna pack a cow out, I, and I, I actually did come to full draw on that cow, on the last day. I was like, man, if I shoot this thing, this is now a two-day ordeal. Now I'm solo, and uh, I'm five miles in one way. She's like, nope, not doing it. Uh, plus, I wanted to get back and uh, see Henry play soccer that next day. That was important to me. Twelve days is a long time to be away from. Aaron and the kiddos. So uh, I actually got back to DFW and showed up at his soccer game five minutes before kickoff. And that kiddo, he is, uh, he does not show a lot of outward emotion, but he saw me as he walked out to play right back. I was sitting right there on the sideline. He walked over and gave me a hug with a big old smile. So uh, it was all worth it. And of course, the twins jumped all over me. They're real sweet on their dad, but. It was a great hunt. I feel refreshed and ready to be the best dad and husband and friend that I can be. really does reset you, uh, for me anyway, which is part of the reason why I, I do it every year, whether I uh, tag a bull or, or eat tag soup. But, um, yeah, looking forward to next year already. And they were talking, man. We had I called in one 
to 27 yards for Anthony, uh, my buddy, uh, but he would have had to take a frontal shot. I would have taken that shot. I've shot one in the chest before. Very deadly inside, and I would do it inside 30, 35 yards. No questions asked. That's a big area still. Um, but he didn't. Ta- I think he was kicking himself for not taking that shot. But you know, it is what it is. If you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. Teach their own. But we did get, and I've never. I will say this: the wind sucks in the mountains. It is always swirling. The thermals are always changing. You're, that's why you carry a wind checker. That's why you're always checking your wind. We probably had four different bulls that were right there inside 50 yards. Some of them you could see. Some of them you you knew were right there in their bed. You're talking. They're fired up. You're bugling. And you just feel the wind hit you on the back of the neck, and you know that that's church. Bye-bye. Crickets. And off they go. So, And a lot of them already had cows with them too, which made things – I mean, as far as calling it a herd bull, forget about it. Those bulls would bugle back at you once, and then we realized what that bugle meant was, hey, ladies, follow me. We are getting the hell out of here because, you know, he's got seven, eight, ten cows with him and has no interest in an altercation. So smart on them, difficult for us, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. What are we doing this week? Let me tell you. You know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle Coffee out of Granddaddy's Beat Up Old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we're going to check in with our Texas Parks and Wildlife Coastal Fisheries Division. Uh, the program leader, Robin Rikers, makes his return to the show. And we're going to talk redfish, trout, and flounder specifically and you might not know about some of the efforts that his division is doing every year as far as restocking our coastal bay systems. Yeah, we know we do it with largemouth and striper and hybrids and stuff uh, on the freshwater side. But yeah, this will be interesting, I think, to, uh, to learn more about how Texas Parks and Wildlife reinvigorates our saltwater bay systems. Uh, And then some interesting stuff to get into with Brian Lynn, our old pal from Sportsman's Alliance. Uh, Pennsylvania Republican senators are trying to hijack hunter dollars. That's right. Basically just steal them from hunters and reallocate them for clean streams and rivers. Yeah, buddy. I don't think so. Those dollars were put there by hunters they are to be reinvested in conservation and big game species. Um, so we got to thwart that ASAP. Uh, Brian will give us the latest on that situation. And then some ridiculous news coming out of Colorado. You shouldn't be surprised, though, as they are uh, dead set on mirroring California to a T. They are trying to ban the harvest of mountain lions and bobcats. And they're going to they're gonna try to get the... Uh, pot-smoking hippies of Boulder and Denver to go along with it. Actually, they're counting on them to try to get this ballot initiative passed. So we'll discuss that and what can be done to try to prevent that from becoming reality. So that's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one. Guarantee you that. Let's do a quick giveaway. How about a set of these Bantam HD binos from Vortex Optics? These are actually the first ever bino that Vortex has designed specifically for youth. That's right. I've got a pair right here. It's a 6.5 by 32. Just email 
the word Vortex, that's Vortex, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, and you could win that little hunter in your life, their own set of Vortex binos. Coming up next, we'll head down to the coast and talk a little redfish, trout, and flounder on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Now I've got kids, yeah, I'm a dad. All of those habits I had had to go. May sound strange, I just changed directions in the middle of the road. If you're looking for a new gun safe, you need to check out the Performance Firearm Storage Solutions from Securit. Unlike traditional safes, Securit products are designed to perform for you. They're lightweight, so you can discreetly store them in any room in the house, and the interior is completely customizable to fit your guns and gear. I would know, I've got four of them. Their fast access storage system keeps my guns and optics organized so they never touch each other or get damaged, and I'm never more than an arm's length away from a firearm. The best part, they're always running great sales. Head over to securitgunstorage.com backslash cable to see their latest promotion, and you can thank me later. For the south coast of Texas, that's a thin slice of life. It's salty and hard, it is stern as a knife. Where the wind is for blowing up, hurricanes for showing. Of course, it had to be the south coast of Texas from the late great Guy Clark, one of my favorite singer-songwriters of all time, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for dropping by today as uh, we're headed to the Texas coast to discuss some of our favorite and most sought-after saltwater species when it comes to uh, bay fishing in the Gulf of Mexico. And we'll do that with uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife's Coastal Fisheries Director, Robin Rikers, in just a second. This segment, though, Brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. And here's the cool thing that we're doing for October. And this is just through the Lone Star Outdoors show. Uh, I want to encourage you to join SCI. It is the world's greatest conservation organization, both domestically and internationally. And here's the cool thing. It's only 65 bucks to join. And right now, you get like 25% off. Yes, 25% off if you use my promo code. But it's even better than that. Because for the month of October, if you use that promo code CABLE23 when you join SCI, you are entered into a, uh, we'll call it a giveaway, a sweepstakes, for a chance to win my own personal Mossberg 300 Win Mag. Um, yeah, I'm going to give away my 300 Win Mag, and uh, we'll give away my uh, Elite Synergy bow as well. That's uh, I think that one might be a couple years old, but it's lightly used. Uh, so 300 Win Mag or uh, an Elite Synergy bow, and yeah, all you have to do is use that promo code CABLE23 when you join STI over at safariclub.org. CABLE23, check it out. Month of October, uh, you could win my 300 Win Mag or my Elite Synergy bow. I think that's what, that's set at like 67 pounds. 29-inch draw, I believe. So, yeah. If, uh, if that's too big or too small for you, it doesn't matter. Give it away to a friend. Hell, sell it online. I don't care what you do with it. Uh, but it is a nice bow. And, of course, uh, y'all know I love my, my Mossberg firearm. So uh, you could win that 300 win mag. But, of course, you're joining the greatest conservation group on the planet in the process. So that's, uh, that's the other stuff's just gravy. Join SCI. Use the promo code uh, CABLE23. All right. With that being said, let's bring him on right now, making his return to the program. 
our good friend and Texas Parks and Wildlife Coastal Fisheries Director, Robin Rikers. It's great to see you. Uh, glad to be here, Cable. Uh, good to be back with you all. Yeah, it's probably yeah, it's probably been at least a year, maybe two, since our last conversation. But uh, you're no stranger to the show over the years. I've been on maybe 10, a dozen times. So great to visit with you again. Uh, how have you been? Been good. Uh, you know, the department's going through some changes, as you certainly know. Uh, but uh, the Coastal Fisheries Division is just, you know, we're, we're just rocking along uh, doing what we do. So collecting our samples and making sure that we're protecting your resources out there. So Awesome. We know it seems not so long ago that the entire Texas coast, maybe there was one place that was five fish, but most of the coast had a 10 fish trout limit. Um, and, you know, we started changing that to five fish in, in certain stretches, you know, and there was so much backlash. Uh, I don't think anyone even has a negative thought about that anymore, though. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. We've really seen it, and we certainly saw it after the freeze, um, you know, winter storm Uri, um, the, the conservation ethic for our spotted sea trout anglers and our anglers in general is just, you know, they really saw that freeze, and they saw an opportunity to try to help out by putting fewer fish in the box. They really supported the three fish limit that we went to and of course it just now reverted back to that five but we we basically met the goal of keeping more fish in the water to spawn and because of all that push for the for the three fish uh, limit and people wanting to have that conversation we are going to have a conversation about what those regs will look like moving forward um, they reverted back to the five fish 15 25 inch but we are going to have a conversation here in the fall about what, what do we want spotted sea trout management to look like uh, along the coast here moving forward? Currently, though, the entire coast is five fish. Yes, the, the, the entire coast went back to the five fish. That's correct. Mm -hmm. we, we, have, of course, had adjusted those bay systems south of Galveston because of the freeze. Mm -hmm. But back when I started this show 15 years ago, yep. probably about the time you came on for the first time, uh, somewhere in there, it was 10 fish everywhere. Yes. Um, yeah, and then now we first have a conversation for three fish. Yep, we first made the change, as you recall, down in the lower Laguna Madre and the upper Laguna Madre, and then we moved it up the coast, basically, uh, to where it was just south of of Matagorda again, and then it, and then we eventually uh, adopted that in in Galveston and Matagorda as well. Um, and yeah, just given the fishing pressures, given the quality of the fishery that people saw. Uh, there at least is a lot of folks out there who want us to be a little more conservative in those limits and maybe, you know, think about a quality quality of fish as as opposed to just quantities of fish as well. And so we're at least going to have that conversation. Yeah, I see both sides of it. You know, I like to catch big bass. Like, I mean, doesn't everybody? Yeah. Uh, I, I think I like to catch big trout, but it's a, it's a little different because when I go to the coast, you know, I want to bring some fish home to eat. Generally speaking, if I go to Lake Fork or something, I'm not keeping any of those bass. I'll eat bass out of a stock pond, but I typically leave the public resource alone. Um, just doesn't it doesn't appeal to me. Um, not that bass tastes bad; it doesn't. But if I drive six hours to the coast, you know, yeah, I I definitely want to bring some fish home. But I will say, having and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I think a lot of us have done this. You know, ten fish trout limit. There have been times where I've gone to the coast back then and caught ten fish, and then three months later or six months or, Oh, it got buried in the freezer. And now I'm throwing away half of those trout that are freezer burned. 
Certainly we've heard that. And, and, you know, that's an experience that unfortunately happens to almost everyone at some point in time, if you, if you do put some fish away, but, you know, I, I think this is a really question mark. The fishery is, is a, a good, stable, sustainable fishery. Uh, it's, it's, we've been proactive in our management. And I think this is just another step in that discussion and dialogue that we can have with our angling public. Sure. But I don't think that's unique to trout. I mean, what can you keep a 25 crappie in a day? I mean, it's the same thing. We all have done this unless you're having a fish fry for a bunch of folks. Like my family can't eat 25 crappie in one sitting, but all of it typically gets bagged together and then it goes in the freezer. And it's like, maybe I ate half of it and then goes back in the freezer. And because the fish doesn't keep as long as say, you know, properly packaged venison or something to that effect. So I don't, I didn't have a problem when we went to the five fish limit. And if, you think the conversation needs to happen to move to a three fish limit, then by all means have the conversation. I know that there were some guides that had some angst when the limit moved from 10 to five. When I've gone to the coast in the last three or four years, they're still booked up. So. Yeah. It, it certainly hadn't, hadn't had the, the, there was, there was the argument that it would in fact hurt some of the recreational fishing, like you said, guide, guide businesses, et cetera. And it doesn't seem like that slowed down very much. And, and mm-hmm. certainly uh, they seem to be booked up still. Um, our fishery is, is you know, again, people wanting to get out on the water. We saw the little bit of an uptick out in, during the COVID years uh, when people were really trying to get outside. And we've sustained that just a little bit as we've moved past that time frame. So, so let me ask you this. How do you track whether or not moving from the 10 fish to five fish limit has been successful like scientifically is there any data to support we're uh you know we're catching bigger fish or we're i, I don't know how our coastal yeah, the, fisheries division sees those results in action well so so certainly one of the ways we look at that is through our you know routine sampling of our gill nets and what we have been able to tell is that we've been able when we move from 10 to 5 we were able to really keep our our biomass at a at a pretty high level which of course really helps us when we have things like the freeze that we had mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we're, we're at a high enough level that we're kind of resilient. We built up some resiliency to having those sorts of events. And so, um, you know, that's one way to look at it. And then the other way to look at it is the economics uh, and kind of the, the perceptions in the fishery and, and what people want out of that fishery when we think about quantity and quality. I think there is a fine line though. You don't want to move from, because it is it is a fishery that people take from yes. and they do consume the fish. You don't want to move that to like the way that we look at largemouth bass where it's oh it's all catch and release or you know there's this negative stigma attached to someone if they keep a bass, you know? Yeah. No, we 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 certainly don't want to move to to that extreme on the on that spectrum of specialization in the fishery like that because you know part of our other goals here at the department is recruiting new people into the fishery and so you know part of that recruitment is the notion of i get to go catch it and i get to go home and i get to clean it and eat it and and you know really have that full experience and certainly uh as we know uh catching spotted sea trout off of of piers and and you know under lights is a is a long time pastime on our texas coast and and it's a way that people get started in the fishery and so we've got to balance that as well right on okay well let's do this let's take a quick break robin we'll come back and i really want to get into the measures that the coastal fisheries division takes to ensure that our most sought after bay species 
maintain the highest population levels possible. Uh, we'll do that next. That segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Big and J Whitetail Attractants. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Somebody spread the rumor that you had lost your life. At least that's the way I heard it and what I told my wife. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Cable Smith, welcome in everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. We're still uh, talking saltwater bays with Robin Rikers, our Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, Coastal Fisheries Program Leader. But before we get back into that conversation, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by the brand spanking new Vortex Bantam. What the Bantam is, it's an HD youth binocular. It's a 6.5 by 32, retailing for uh, under $75. Perfect. Uh, you're thinking about gifts for the kiddos that they're going to be excited about for this hunting season. Uh, maybe slap one of these under the Christmas tree. It's the Bantam HD. And you can find it at vortexoptics.com. Or go to youroptic.com and use that promo code LONESTAR10. Save 10% off any Vortex Optics purchase. All right. Uh, with that being said, let's get back into it uh, with our old friend, Robin Rikers. In order of importance, and I think the main three inland you know, uh, species would be trout, redfish, and flounder that people are, are targeting. Um, would you, can you rank those three as far as which one generates, you know, the most, uh, economic revenue, which one most anglers are, are after, sure. um, yeah. how do you guys rank those in order of importance? Well, in, if you talk to some of our guides, they would say spotted sea trout's clearly the, the, the fish that gets tourism, you know, to the coast, et cetera. Um, but you know, there are other guides who really look at tailing red drum as that as mm -hmm. well. So, so, you know, I think it's uh, really, it's hard for us to untangle red drum and spotted sea trout. When we think about our surveys, we do of people, a lot of people just say we're fishing for reds and spotted sea trout when they go, those are clearly the top two. And then of course we, we have that flounder fall run that we, we, we typically have had, uh, of course, the regulations now are kind of, kind of, pushing that fishery uh, to each side of that kind of fall window because we need those fish to escape and spawn. But but flounder and black drum certainly come in there uh, as well, depending on where you're at on the coast. Do you guys actually do anything to manage for black drum? Uh, we do have a limit on black drum. Uh, uh, it's five fish limit and it's mm -hmm. a maximum limit as well. You know, that black drum fishery really in the upper Laguna Madre is where that fishery is the heart of that fishery. And that that's population has, has really stayed really resilient there though. A few years back, uh, there was somewhat of a die off in that fishery. They, they, 
kind of a, a ended up finding out that basically a key food source had gone away for a couple years or certainly been minimized for a couple years uh, but it's back and, and growing again and that fishery does really well in that part of the world what food source is that out of curiosity it was a basically a clam that they feed on very heavily and are, are dependent upon yeah okay uh, it's no secret that our freshwater division has long been stocking our lakes with various species and you know largemouth bass we have the share lunker program going back to the uh, 90s and they've spent a lot of time money resources on the genetic side of things and then physically stocking all of these uh, bodies of water i don't think a lot of folks realize that you guys are doing essentially the same thing in our saltwater based systems um, but I don't know as much information about what you guys do. So talk about how you have implemented that and historically, like how long we've been doing it and just the process. Like, I don't know where we're spawning these fish and then where we're releasing them. Yeah. I really don't know much about it at all. Well, yeah, let me, let me help there a little bit, Cable. Um, so we, we basically have three hatcheries on our Texas coast that raise red drum spotted sea trout and now flounder. Uh, it's Lake Jackson Sea Center, Texas, which is equivalent to Texas Fisheries Center uh, in, in, in Athens there. Mm -hmm. It's a visitor center as well as a hatchery. Uh, and we also have another hatchery in Corpus Christi. Uh, and then we have a Periar Bass Marine uh, Science Center, which is in the Midcoast area, Palacios, Port, Port O'Connor area, and that's a grow-out facility. We don't we don't spawn fish there, but we do have a science center and a grow-out facility. But yeah, we've been in the business of stocking now for over 25 years as well. Um, you know, started out really with Red Drum being the, the poster child of our stocking program at the time. We continue to stock, and this year we stocked about 10 million Red Drum. We stocked almost 6 million spotted sea trout. Wow. Um, Flounder's kind of new on the block for us, and when I say new, we've really been working hard over about the last eight years to try to figure out this this issue um, and, you know, try to try to support flounder through a stocking program as well. Flounder are much harder to stock. It's a strip spawning exercise still. So, um, but we, we, this year we actually tripled the number we stocked and we were up close to 300,000 this year that we were able to stock in our, in our bays. How we determine where those fish go, we look at our sampling that we do. And what we basically are trying to do is take away kind of the troughs that you would see in, in natural recruitment. And so we're trying to make sure that we we basically, if a base system for some reason, due to salinity or a freshwater inflow issue during the, the key spawning time, really didn't have the spawn it's supposed to have, we try to go in and supplement and, and, and make sure that we have enough fish in those areas. Um, and so much like um, um, the, the our freshwater uh, brethren, we, you know, a lot of discussions about the genetics, um, a little bit different in our approach there and that we're not trying to create big bass or big fish. We're trying to make sure we keep our, our natural genetics uh, since we're basically in a public water body and, and it's, you know, and making sure that we don't do anything to disturb our natural genetics uh, along the Texas coast. And there are some differences in those genetics as, for instance, on spotted sea trout as we go from the lower lagoon all the way up. Basically the same population, but they have through time acclimated with, with some, some slight differences in their genetic makeup as we move up the coast.
at what size are we restocking? Are these fingerlings or are they fry? I have no idea. Yeah, they're they're more in that fingerling type stage or and or fry stage. That's where the cost benefit really is the best. If we keep them much past that in our ponds, the the both the cannibalism that occurs in spotted sea trout as well as just the the cost and the feed and the effort start to make that cost benefit and so what we've been able to find through a lot of research in the early years is stocking them at that slightly smaller size you know about a about an inch or so about mm -hmm. the end of your finger um that's where we get the biggest bang for the buck so at that size there's is there any any mechanism that you can use or technology to actually track these fish we, we have, we've, uh, you know, invested in really genetic marking that allows us to track these fish. Uh, what we've seen through time is that, you know, in any given bay system on any given year, we've had, and you know, I mean, average wise, uh, it would be, you know, probably around 6% or so um, if we, if we did a long-term average, but we've seen our, our stocking makeup as much as nearly 20% in some base systems in some years. And again, that's all due to what we're trying to do is level out that natural recruitment. Okay. Fascinating. And, and you mentioned ponds. So, and as someone who's kept fish in a fish tank my entire life, you know, I've, I've done African cichlids that have a lot, uh, they require a lot higher salinity. And, yep. you know, then you're like, sometimes you feel like a mad scientist. You're doing all these, you know, level checks and, is there too much ammonia in the water? And then, you know, it was, it was really cool in high school when I was keeping these fish, but you know, then you go and you play around with uh, South American species like Oscars or Pacus or something. And they don't, they, they like a lot softer water. If you're keeping these things in ponds and we know that redfish can live in fresh water, like in Lake right. uh, Browning and Calaveras. And uh, what is the, what is the, how does that system work? Are they actually saltwater ponds? Well, what we do is we basically have our brood fish in, in the spawning tanks that we will use. And, and that's how we basically spawn those fish. And then we'll, once we get them to a fry stage or a, a hatch stage, we'll then put them in ponds. Uh, we are subject even still to the, to, to the vagaries of the weather because our intakes are out in the, you know, in, in some sort of canal situation uh, at Lake Jackson. It's, it's uh, a complement of the Dow system that brings it up a canal in Corpus Christi. It's, it's complement of a, a, a discharge opportunity we have there right in Flower Bluff going uh, into the bay there. Um, and so, you know, for instance, uh, almost every year we kind of fight the salinity that we will see down in that lower coast area where that's less of a problem in Lake Jackson. And so we've got to balance that out in our, in our, in our broodfish tanks, it's a little easier to do more confined type of facility. We can bring the water in and, and, you know, kind of help to, to, to treat that in a way to make sure we get the optimal uh, salinities in those systems. But, uh, and we, when we put those fish out in the ponds, we're dealing with some of the vagaries of nature there as well. So, but by and large, you're able to just pump that water in directly from the bay. So, yes, yeah, con controls itself there. Um, yep. What would you say is the most interesting thing that you've learned throughout the stocking process Ooh. as a result of the the stocking process? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think we've gone through different stages, and certainly our stage early on was, you know, trying to think about where's that sweet spot for for these fish and how do we get our numbers up to where it's a cost um you know where where it's not cost prohibitive uh and we certainly have done that with red drum and spotted sea trout 
Um, you know, then we went into a stage of, as you talked about, how do we know if it's it's doing what we think it's doing? And so we then did research to determine that. And, you know, one of the things that my team is just staying up uh, every night, basically worrying about right now is how do we get better at Southern Flounder? Because, you know, we've got a species that's in decline across the entire Gulf. Um, it's probably due to temperature, water temperatures and things like that. Uh, but but all of us are trying and, and we're not the only Gulf state and, and South Atlantic state that's trying to figure it out. But how do we help supplement that fishery and bring it back to its historic level um, or, you know, as high as we can get it in, in terms of its historic level? Um, and, you know, we're really trying to figure out if we can we can do that. And there's a lot of different research going on with our teams on Southern Flounder right now trying to determine can we speed up their growth in the hatchery? What happens when we talk about these salinity levels and temperature levels? Uh, their, their, their sex ratio is determined by a very small window of the temperature when they're at this very young age. And so mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we determine that so that when we stock these fish, we're getting the appropriate sex ratio? So just a lot of science stuff that goes into that. But what I think the, you know, the really take-home message for, for so many of us is the programs work and and they're they're helping supplement our fishery they're helping keep it healthy and we're doing that for for all of those texas anglers so so that was interesting to me what you said in terms of flounder when they're born they don't they're not assigned to sex well they can they they can they end up being their determination of sex occurs um, basically at a very young age and and based on a temperature tolerance when they when they when the basically float back up when if, if they weren't in our system when they float back up into the marsh and they're setting there that's typically when that sex will be determined huh interesting and like i said all of that's going to be subject to you know us seeing that lower recruitment us putting a bunch of fish there and then seeing how well they do in subsequent years so the ocean's a gnarly place like uh, you, you know you never know what's going to eat you yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, sometimes you catch stuff when you're just in the bay and you're like, what the hell is that? You yeah. know, I don't know what that thing is, that, but everything out there is, is, is ready to eat something else that's smaller. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I would imagine the, uh, that it's just a, a, a swamping deal. We just got to put as many in because survival rate is pretty low, yeah. you know, all things considered. Well, fascinating stuff, Robin. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I think most, uh, anglers are familiar with uh, the fact that we've been doing this in our freshwater for a long time, uh, really honing in on largemouth bass, but uh, you guys are doing the same thing. And I just wanted to uh, to make sure everyone was aware that my fishing license isn't just going to, uh, when I buy my license or, or I buy um, tackle or whatever it is, it's going back to support uh, stuff for, for saltwater anglers and opportunity in our bay systems as well. No, it absolutely does. And so we really appreciate all the support when people do buy their license. And, and even as you suggest, also when they, when they buy tackle and gear and so forth, that comes back to us through a federal program as well. And, and, uh, you know, we really are trying to basically take your dollars and, and reinvest them in, in, in whether it's restoration on the coast to help support that fishery or whether it's stocking or whether it's our monitoring of our current populations. And I really, really appreciate you having me here this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. It was great catching up. Thanks for all you guys do, and uh, I look forward to our next visit. Yep. We'll see you then. All right. Again, Take thank care. you.
So there you have it. Everything you need to know concerning uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Coastal Fisheries Division as far as their efforts in trying to maintain healthy populations of uh, trout, redfish, and flounder in particular. Uh, thanks to Robin for making time for us. That segment of the show brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and the Little Chingone Deer Blind. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Of course, they've got uh, their entire lineup of feeders there as well. Coming up next, Brian Lynn of the Sportsman's Alliance makes his return. We've got corruption in the Pennsylvania Senate. Yeah, they are trying to steal Hunter dollars right out from underneath us. And then horrible news coming out of Colorado. Bad, 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 bad. Uh, yeah, apex predators once again in the crosshairs of the ant. Can't say crosshairs because they don't own any guns. Uh, but the low hanging fruit. Yeah, they're trying to ban mountain lion hunting in Colorado. We discuss next on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Let me see you smile. Cause we both know it's been too long. Forget who's right or who is wrong. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com looking for a thermal hog hunt near dfw then three curl outfitters has you covered offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of dallas guide scout daily to put you on the bacon using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders crop fields and river bottoms you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees visit www.3curl.com also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940 Working man does his best to provide safety and shelter for kids and a wife. Giving a little of a soul every day, making overtime to keep the wolves away. Uncle Lucius, keep the wolves away, bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg. Highly appropriate, too, since we're about to check in with Sportsman's Alliance's Brian Lynn. And you know what they do. Day in and day out, uh, they keep the anti-hunting wolves away by keeping you and I abreast of everything, all of the anti-hunting, anti-trapping, anti-2A legislation being introduced in all 50 states. Um, so we'll check in with our good friend Brian Lynn momentarily. I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thanks for being here. Uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the Mossberg Patriot Rifle Series. Rugged, reliable, accurate, and American-made Check it out. It's the Mossberg Patriot. Everything from a 22-250 up to a 375 Ruger. You can find it at Mossberg.com. With that being said, let's bring him on right now. Our old buddy checking in from Washington State, Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance. Welcome back to the show, man. Yeah, Cable. Great to be here. Yeah, it's always always a pleasure. So have you been in the uh, the woods yet this fall or have has your has your season started? Uh, I have it. Uh, deer muzzleloader starts this weekend. So my son and I'll be out there. Um, he did archery elk this year, but 
you know, being a teenager, didn't quite communicate the days off he needed on the weekends at his uh-huh. work. He started working this summer. And so it was like evening, morning, go work, evening. Mm. <laughs> and uh, pretty brutal. And then uh, the last weekend, he wasn't feeling great. So he stayed home. And about, you know, a couple hours later, I got the uh, image from the trail cam saying that the big six by six walked in all by himself right in front of his blind. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's the way it always goes. Yeah. Life lesson. <laughs> you got to be in the woods. Yeah. The biggest buck that I've ever hunted. I got that same photo on Halloween, but I was taking the kids trick or treating. And there was, I mean, there was no way I could miss it. So daddy duties though. You got to do those, you know? Yeah. Yeah, There's a trade-off that's for sure. Um, well I've been in the elk woods myself and so I've kind of been out of the, the news cycle, but I know we have some stuff to discuss. Uh, starting with Pennsylvania, and I've only seen the headlines. I haven't uh, had a chance to dive into it, so that's why you're here. You're going to educate us on the headline I read said Senate Republicans raid wildlife fund, essentially. So what what is going on in Pennsylvania in the uh, dumb-dumb Fetterman state? Yeah. <laughs> Who thinks it's okay to wear sweatshirts into Congress? Like, well, you know, and it, that's something you would expect from Fetterman or somebody, but uh, this is the Senate Republicans. They they passed this. The House had passed a version of it, but it was different. Uh, it's a fiscal bill. It's House Bill 1300, I think. And it's mm-hmm. a fiscal So there's a whole bunch of different funds being talked about and funding for different pieces of the government here. And so it came to the Senate. And they put an amendment in to take, uh, uh, like, uh, what is it, $150 million out of the game fund, which is where license fees for hunters and trappers go, other funds like that, and divert that over to the Clean Stream Fund, which, you know, great. We're all for clean streams and water and deer and fish and everybody need this. But... You know, if you talk to people who are smarter than myself and know the law, this puts a whole lot of things at risk as far as Pittman-Robertson dollars, reallocation. Those, It's very specific on what those can be used for. And uh, they're basically just raiding this fund, you know, that we've all put into all the, the hunters and trappers in Pennsylvania, which is like the number one state with the most hunters, I think. Mm, Texas has more, more hunters because we have more people. But I think Pennsylvania has the most deer hunters per per capita, like population percentage wise. Yeah, you know, so I I think you guys sell the most hunting licenses, one point three million or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people are going to PA to to hunt. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, PA is uh, and my buddy Rob um, Carringer, who who owns a a high fence ranch here in Texas, he's from Pennsylvania. He goes back every fall. He still has a little piece of property there, but he says it's the, the mentality there is if it's a if it has antlers, you shoot it. There's no like, there's no whitetail management, and and nobody cares if you got a if you got a, a four point around the water cooler at work. Everyone's like, oh, you got a buck? You can, how big? You know, it was a four point. They're like, oh, that's awesome. You know, because when you shoot all the deer that have antlers, then there's very few actual bucks left to to hunt. So when you get one, anything with with antlers, it's a big deal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's that's the problem there. But uh, <laughs> is there that there's a lot of hunters in PA, right? Uh-huh. 
I mean, oh, for sure. This is just a slap in the face, like an egregious, like, there's your money, your funding that's been put aside legally. We're going to take it and divert it over to here to something that's tangently connected to it. Um, mm. It's environmentalism, right? And I would say most hunters are, on some level, we're environmentalists, right? Yeah. Uh, but those dollars are allocated for conservation related issues, not for clean streams. Yeah. You know, and so it, it's, uh, Hopefully they can, we, they just came back into session this week, yesterday, actually. And so hopefully the headlines and the negative press and the blowback from conservation organizations and advocacy organizations will be enough to kill the amendment. But uh, we'll see. If not, then there's perhaps legal avenues based on Pittman-Robertson. But really they're, you know, potentially screwing themselves by taking this $150 million and losing you know, 40 million a year for the future. Yeah. <laughs> Pittman Robertson, you know, so that's, that's what's crazy there. And, and the other thing is that PA, because they have all these oil and natural gas leases have like a $13 billion surplus hmm. of money to go around in the state. So why did the Senate Republicans go after this funding? You know, who should pay for, Clean water, the oil companies. <laughs> How about the people that are polluting the water? And I'm all for like, I, I fundamentally believe we should be self-sufficient on our energy. We have enough oil, let's drill it. But at the same time, let's, there's ways to do it where you're not destroying the environment. We all know that this whole climate change, we got to drive electric cars, BS. Uh, well, what do you do with the batteries? Well, they're toxic. There's no way to dispose of the batteries. You've you've mentioned it, or maybe it was Kent Cartridge, but it, but um, I think it's uh, federal. They they take all of the um, what is yeah, it that they're using? Batteries. Car batteries is what they use for their lead shot and bullets. Yeah, right. So they're turning car batteries into ammunition, but there's nothing you can do with these electric uh, vehicle batteries. Yeah, yeah, um, and we don't have the infrastructure anyway in this country to if everyone all of a sudden drove an electric vehicle, we wouldn't have a way to power them. <laughs> so it's well, putting the cart before the horse big time. Yep. Yep. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens in PA. Hopefully it gets killed here as they come back into session and bring it up. If not uh, potential legal action could be taken. So who typically does fund uh, stuff like, you know, clean water, um, well, it sounds like it's a fund, like there is a separate fund set up. Here's the game fund, uh -huh. the clean streams fund, you know, and where that funding for the clean streams comes from, I'm not exactly clear yet, uh -huh. uh, but uh, they're just doing the fuzzy math, math thing that politicians and accountants like to do and shifting it from one fund to another. Unfortunately, there's legal strings tied to this money, you know, mm -hmm. for them, fortunately for us. There are legal strings and Pittman Robertson dollars, or it's very clear where they need to be going. Yeah. So they have all this money sitting, a surplus of money sitting in the hunting and conservation fund. Uh, well, well, the the game fund, yeah, it has it has money. You know, whether it's a surplus or not, I don't know. I haven't seen their budgets. But they're doing a, It's like a cyclical. How long? I don't know Pennsylvania's uh, state, the infrastructure of their laws. But like, I think in Texas, we do every two years. Um, so this is to take the 150 as a multi-year 
proposal? That I don't know. I mean, it could okay. be be one year, but it could be a multi-year. I mean, most places run on a at least two year, two to four yeah. year, four years here in Washington. Um, so yeah, it uh, it's it's hard to say, but uh, you know, the bottom line is that yeah, you know, once again, hunters are being used as a piggy bank. You know, and this is constant battle, and this is a bigger overarching piece. This is what you know, wildlife for all and these other groups want to do is turn this into turn turn the model upside down go pro predator rewilding take hunters out of the equation but until they do that what they're trying to do is raid constantly they're trying to raid these Pittman robertson dollars and the other funding that hunters provide stealing from us right because because all they do and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out these organizations exist to raise money and we've talked about this in the past. And then they take that money to bring litigation forth against hunting. They don't put any money back into the things that they say they love. So now they want to exist to sue us. And then they want to take the money that we're actually using for conservation and redistribute it to themselves, essentially. Yeah, yeah. and put it put it in a different places where they think it belongs. You know, and this is what they, you know, I was thinking about this last night, you know, wildlife for all's big thing is that oh you know the the north american model is outdated we need a new model that includes you know all this biodiversity loss and addresses climate change and addresses all these big picture topics mm-hmm. you know that the model was never intended for you know mm-hmm. but they, they want to break the model that has worked for a hundred years that's the thing the model works the model they don't have a model to replace it yeah. that includes all these games well, it's like the electric cars <laughs> they want to save all the voles and mice and you know whatever this, you know some of the birds that are on there um but they don't have a model to fund it or how it works so they want to destroy something that works yet don't have anything to replace it that's better instead of just creating something alongside of it that works in tandem to protect that stuff they don't do that because they don't have the funding we have the funding yet they're going to destroy that funding by removing hunters mm-hmm. hey. and taking all the money that, you know, we're responsible yeah, it's for putting into action. Your state, you know, almost is they, you know, politicians sit there as they're doing budgets and they look over and see tens of millions or potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in a game fund. And boy, that, that looks very enticing to try to siphon off of. But uh, the guys who wrote the, Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson were smart enough to tie those strings to it. And Mm -hmm. not only do they lose funding for that next year, they lose funding going forward and can potentially have to back pay stuff. So there's a, there's a real financial risk and legal risk for them. Because Pittman Robertson, I mean, that's the excise tax that we've put on ourselves as hunters. Yep. And it's legally allocated for hunting, conservation, um, fishing. I mean, fishing's not a uh, yes, uh, habitat projects. You know, all all the things that would benefit hunters and those those game species related to hunting yeah. and fishing and fishing because there's yeah. there's two sides. There's Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson, which make up the Sport Fish and Restoration Act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. I always say 
that 99.9% of anti-hunting legislation, anti-gun legislation is brought on by the left, by the Democrats. So when you see something from Republicans as egregious as this, I mean, it really pisses me off. Uh, yeah. That, and you would think in a state like Pennsylvania, where there are so many hunters, passionate hunters, it's a way of life there, that that they wouldn't have stepped so far out of bounds. Uh, so it was really surprising to see this. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's like, whoa, you know, which, you know, hopefully because of everything that's been happening over the last week or two, you know, when this broke, that they just came into session yesterday. So I'm, we're hopeful that, you know, when they, whoever uh, is getting the most blowback from this pulls that amendment and, and strikes it and everybody passes it and, and it moves forward without this amendment to raid the fund. So uh, do we know what Republican representative was responsible for this? Because um, if Republicans start going the way of the Democrats on, you know, becoming more anti-hunting, you don't even have to be an, uh, an anti-hunting activist, but if you start letting the antis bend your ear on political issues as a Republican, then we're all screwed. I mean, there's no hope if both parties are like, oh, well, we don't like hunting. Well, then there's going to be no hunting. Well, and that's, and that's you know, our big fear and where we see this going. You know, we, we're, we're looking ahead and going, this is a problem because more suburban areas, you know, are those, even when they go Republican, those Republicans are looking to be a softer, have a softer edge to them because they are pro-gun, you know, which mm. can often ding them, you know, in suburban settings. And so they often do the the puppy mill bills or the Texas bills with how many you can breed and, you know, these kind of dog things. And it's a short little step once those people have an in and have your ear and, you know, gain a little trust. And if that, you know, dog bill gives you a bump, they're more likely to start paying attention. So it is something we as a community need to worry about. You know, it's not just holding Democrats you know, feet to the fire when the Republicans do it, you know, whether it's a dog bill, gun bill, or a fiscal bill like this, well, we, it, they need to feel the heat big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you should, your political career should be in jeopardy if this is the way that you're going about things as a Republican, because the people that put you in power, i.e. the hunters of Pennsylvania, are, you've literally, like you opened up with, it's a slap in the face. Yeah. Yep. yep. So hopefully this gets struck, you know, in the process before it gets finalized. If not, we'll have to look at legal legal action. And it, if it doesn't get struck down, it sets a terrible precedent for, you know, other states to feel emboldened to to raid those funds as well. Yeah, which is another reason you have to bring, you know, a lawsuit, you know, just to keep everybody else on their toes, knowing that as a community, we will step forward and fight any any attempt to raid these funds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a pinned post on the uh, Sportsman's Alliance Instagram page it, relating to wolves. Um, and <laughs> wolves is something that has been in the headlines since reintroduction in 1994. I mean, it's, it's always there. It's always front and center. And we are, we live in this, you know, constant battle. The pendulum swings towards, you know, proper management and then you'll have some circuit court judge or somebody say no it doesn't and swing it back towards okay now we're we're back to this gridlock of we can't manage wolves and 
luckily Idaho, Wyoming, Montana have had the ability to manage on some level. Um, they still have way more wolves than they agreed to have. Like that, what a hundred breeding pairs? Well, Idaho alone has fifteen hundred wolves. So, you know, in Idaho, fishing game shoots them out of helicopters and leaves them there, and they don't publicize that, but they they've told me they do it yeah. because they they're trying to help the elk herd. Because what funds conservation in Idaho? Well, much like Colorado, uh, elk and deer license sales or from out of state hunters are the big contributing factor. Well, so then we had, uh, you know, this, this uh, ballot initiative in Colorado where they're going to reintroduce wolves. But what is the, the pinned post on y'all's page? What is the significance of that? Is there some kind of news or, um, or is just more of a PSA? Yeah, earlier this summer, we filed a couple of petitions. And it's, the, it's a path forward for managing wolves in the, in the regional level, like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. That's called the distinct population segment. Uh-huh. Right now, there's the uh, the Rocky Mountain distinct population, which are those three states and this, you know portions of the surrounding states, Eastern Oregon and Washington. And then there's the uh, Western Great Lakes wolves distinct population. They're the ones that can't manage at all. Yeah, Wish- Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Yeah, and those are federally protected, can't be killed. You know, yada yada yada. Um, and so we put in two petitions that will satisfy the courts, you know, what the courts have said, you know, they, they haven't said the court's rulings haven't been, you, you know, no, you can't manage these. They actually upheld our, our case, our points, you know, was it five years ago, four years ago, something like that, uh, 2017. So six years ago, uh, that, uh, even though they, put those wolves back on the endangered species list. Once they were removed, they were put back on the endangered species list, which seemed like a loss to everybody. We said it's a short-term loss because the long game is that the judge upheld our argument that you can delist by population segment, by distinct Mm -hmm. population segment. So we put in two petitions. One says recognize and delist the Western Great Lake wolves manage them at the state level, you know, according to those management plans. And they're a separate DPS, just like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming as a DPS. Now you got all these other wolves in that are expanding, right? We have them here in Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon. They're going over the mountains, going over by uh, Vancouver and, you know, spreading out across the state as they do, which in Washington, has to happen before we can delist them on our state endangered species mm-hmm. so still certain areas so we're saying create a west coast wolves population distinct population segment so western the western two-thirds of washington and oregon and then into california would be your west coast distinct population segment manage those according to objectives goals whatever the eastern third of Washington and Oregon are part of the Rocky Mountain, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. So those, you know, if they were to follow this, those here could be hunted and managed. Probably never happened with Washington politics, but they could theoretically be managed then while the wolves still expand in the western side of the state into California. Mm-hmm. One distinct population delist the Western Great Lakes wolves create a new West Coast distinct population and manage those accordingly. And then the third piece of it was 
to create a remnant wolf DPS. That'd be all the other wolves. So those going into Colorado, Utah, et cetera, would be managed as remnant pop as a remnant population kind of in between those distinct populations. And then they would be their own DPS and you could manage them accordingly. Mm-hmm. So then you can okay. step in the Great Lakes, the Rocky Mountains, eastern part of Washington, Oregon. And as they met objectives in those other places, other states, they could be managed. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, well, hopefully that, you know, gains steam. But it's, I don't know how likely that is, especially with the West Coast stuff. Uh, Oregon, Washington, California don't seem like states that want to have anything to do with wolf management, frankly. So, <laughs> yes, yes. But this is not at the state level that we yeah. petition U.S. Fish and Wildlife who is doing a review of the data and that should be coming out here in a couple of months. So mm. they have, we've created a path forward for them if they want to, you know, okay. that would be the federal plan. Yeah. Then you run into the state issue because the two have to have congruence. And so you run into the state issue that, Hey, Washington with our game commission is never gonna <laughs> open up a wolf season. Oregon, mm. California, not going to open a wolf season season, even if they legally can by the federal level, even if they legally can by their own state acts, those commissions are not going to open up a wolf season. But it frees up those remnant populations as they go. You get a political wind change in, you know, 28 years or something like that. Uh, Maybe somebody opens it up or the social. So it's being proactive. There's no real short term gain insight but it's 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 the the long play yep exactly right on uh let's take a break brian we'll come back and head to colorado to discuss the latest um anti-hunting development that has uh taken hold in (laughs) i don't even know what to say about colorado what a disgrace uh used to be an iconic symbol of the american west now it's just basically california 2.0 but we'll discuss that next that segment of the show Brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee, veteran-owned and unapologetically American. They've got the brew for you, whether you like a light, medium, or dark roast, or uh, if you are into their unapologetically patriotic swag, caps, t-shirts, hoodies, you name it. And uh, you can find it all at blackriflecoffee.com. We'll be right back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Let me tell you about the Armorsight 640 contractor. It is the industry-leading thermal technology in a very user-friendly rifle scope. A 640 Armacore 12 Micro made in the USA Thermal Core. It's got a four-hour onboard recording, four-hour runtime on a full charge, USB and Wi-Fi streaming, uh, eight user-selectable reticles and six color palettes, and the most user-friendly interface out there. 
because you're operating these things in the dark. So uh, that's very important. You can find the contractor, the 640, or its little brother, the 320, right there at armorsite.com. Whiskey Myers bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for being here today. We're still visiting with uh, Brian Lynn of Sportsman's Alliance. Before we get back into that discussion, though, this segment of the presentation brought to you by NUMA, geared for the outdoors. Man, I'll tell you what. The elk hunt uh, didn't go as planned as far as tagging a big bull, but... I was dry, I was warm, I was comfortable for the entire trip, and that was all due to the uh, high-quality apparel, hunting apparel, that NUMA offers. Specifically, I wore the, uh, most days, the Pursuit Pant, which comes in that Kaza camo, and then the uh, Renegade hoodie top, which is uh, a lightweight, because it was hot during the day. Um, there were some, you know what? I take that back. You don't know what the weather's going to do in the mountains. Some days it sleeted. Some days it rained. Some days it was hot. Some days it was chilly. There was a couple days I I kept my jacket on the entire time. Um, but I always had that uh, Renegade hoodie on as the base layer. And you can find the Renegade right there at NumaOutdoors.com and save 20% off your entire NUMA order with that promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out. And here's the cool thing. All of their apparel, guaranteed for life. It's crazy, but they do it. Okay, uh, Brian, thanks for sticking around. So I uh, I got out of the, uh, the Sangre de Cristos Mountains in New Mexico, and one of the first things that I th- one of the first things that I saw was that uh, Colorado, where I have actually killed a mountain lion, um, they have brought forth. A proposal to ban all mountain lion and of course you got to throw in the endangered bobcat as well so no they don't want cats being killed brian we love we love our feel guess what i hate cats I, I like mountain lions i hate house cat i would never have one i don't like litter boxes sorry to all the people out there listening like i'm a dog person um if i lived if i had some land i'd have a cat i would it would be like an outside cat that killed mice and i'd pet it on the head scratch it and say Yes, Figaro, good boy, you know. But uh, no, not a cat person. I like hunting them. There's no science to, especially in Colorado, they have uh, the piece that I was, the article I was reading said estimate, probably a very low estimate, between 5,000 and 7,000 mountain lions in the state. But you have animal rights groups that uh, don't want anybody killing a mountain lion. No, we can't do that. So the morons of Denver and Boulder already voted to reintroduce wolves onto the landscape to further uh, decimate the elk and mule deer herds. And now we're going to potentially have an unchecked mountain lion population as well. And if I read it correctly, it's going to be just like the the wolf thing. It's going to be, they've got a petition going. And if they get, I think it's like a hundred and I don't know how they come up with a number, but if they get 124,000 signatures, they're going to put it on the ballot and they're going to let the people that have smoked themselves retarded vote on this too. And 
the population will decide rather than paid wildlife biologists, the population of Colorado will decide whether or not uh, they will continue to allow the harvest of mountain lions and bobcats. How'd I do? Is that, is that the gist of it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was pretty good. Um, this, you know, we, we saw this last year, remember that uh, there was a legislative bill that sought to be ban mountain lion, bobcat and the endangered federally protected Canada lynx, which mm. there's any of them in the, in the state, if there even is one. Um, but that plays well. There was a big uproar, Colorado groups and everybody met and had a sportsman's day on the Capitol steps when the bill was being heard in committee, they killed it. And this is a pattern we see is they try at the commission level to pass something, a regulation that doesn't work. So they go to the legislature, push the legislature for a couple of sessions to pass something. When that gets killed, they go to the ballot box and go with the popular vote. They try the path of least resistance and the cheapest path. Those don't, the first two don't really cost money. Legislature might, you know, if they hire a, uh, a lobbyist or something, mm-hmm. but it costs a lot of money. A ballot initiative costs millions of dollars. So Colorado sportsmen are going to have to, you know, start uh, digging in and fundraising and finding money because it's going to cost several million dollars if this thing makes it just because the air buys in Colorado and Boulder and Colorado Springs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but these guys were, were pretty smart when they did this. They called it trophy hunting. Mm-hmm. Titled it to, to ban trophy hunting, which is going to play excellent when they ask for signatures at the grocery stores and ice cream shops and wherever else, you know. Oh, I have another idea of where they're going to be posting up. Outside of uh, all the dispensaries for... Yeah. The people that come in, you know what? And I'm not even anti-weed. I could care less. I've done it in my life. I don't care one way or the other. But um, it's weird because the states that allow marijuana are the ones that seem to be the most anti-hunting. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, man. I'm just connecting the dots. Like California, like they were the first ones to be like, weed's cool. Okay, so is uh, banning cougar hunting. They did it in the 90s, banning cougar hunting. And then um, I, somebody commented because I posted the the situation on my instagram somebody commented that they have more pictures of mountain lions on their trail cameras than they do of deer in california like so here's how you the the, here's the wrong way to do things and colorado can't get out of their own way they are so intent on being uh california's little stepbrother like everything that california did they're like we got to do that like recently california has seen it has seemed sane, you know, it's Washington now that's gone batshit crazy and Colorado is right behind them. What's interesting is uh, Jeff Davis, the head of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, was the conservation director in Washington. He left Washington and took the head job there in Colorado. Before he left, he was working on Washington State's conservation policy that's in the commission right now. It was his brainchild and Barbara Baker's brainchild this thing is filled with anti-hunting, preservationist language, loopholes, depending on social sciences, depending on, uh, you know, uh, uh, biodiversity and climate change. It's got these big loopholes and big ideas that you can drive a truck through trying to pass any preservationist policy that you want. And this is to guide the department in, in its in the future. And so 
what what is happening and this is what we keep saying and we had a big fundraiser in washington this year this couple of weeks ago is it's not just washington mm-hmm. anybody else is going to be facing this too it's happening right now in washington and washington laws are set up to facilitate it but this guy left washington and now he's the head of colorado parks and wildlife now colorado parks and wildlife isn't hasn't weighed in on this yet and hasn't said anything oh guess what i have this- a prediction on that brian They'll have a gag order issued because when the wolf thing came back up, they weren't. I talked to the uh, the PR, the public relations director for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and I said, why does your agency not come out and speak against this? And she goes, well, we, we're not really uh, speaking on it. I said, so there's a gag order. And she goes, no. I said, well, but then why don't you tell me what the agency's take on it is? Well, we're not really speaking so there's a there, okay. Well, there was a gag order. She just didn't want to confirm that on the record, right? But that's 100 percent what there was. And the politicians were very smart because they were, they told Colorado Parks and Wildlife, no, do not have any public comment. They wouldn't let any of the actual biologists talk to anybody yeah. because you knew what they were going to say. Well, we're uh, vehemently against this ballot initiative, but they don't. We, they didn't want to sway public opinion with the truth. So I have a feeling. We'll probably see something very similar where the, the, the actual people that manage the wildlife will have no comment. You'll have little, you know, little to no resistance from the department. They, like you said, they'll, they'll stay quiet, stay neutral, whatever, instead of speaking the truth. Not that it would matter because when the biologist, bear biologist did it here in Washington, they didn't care. They just drug her through the public ringer, decimating her science, supposedly, so much so that she quit, hmm. you know. And so... Uh, you know, the, where we're going with this is that, uh, you know, Washington's a dumpster fire right now. Colorado's right there with them, you know, and it will move, you know, as these people move to different jobs, as the as the public uh, policy takes on, as the media gets into it, they'll use these as examples and pose the question. So this, you know, even though we're, we talk a lot about Washington, we're talking about Colorado, you know, Arizona faced a wildcat ban a couple of years ago, a ballot initiative. Maine Society of the United States ran into a lot of issues, so they dropped it. But Arizona is another one. Well, heck, last August, I went to Austin to speak against Texans for Mountain Lions, which is basically an anti-hunting, anti-big cat hunting group, disguised the, the figurehead of the whole thing. You know, he says he shoots a deer every once in a while. Okay, big deal. But you're anti bear, you're anti cougar, you're anti trapping, um, and that was that was them trying to see how much sway they could pull with Texas Parks and Wildlife. So that was the beginning of this movement in my state, where you would never think this would happen. But I've seen it firsthand. I saw them speak. I heard every one of them speak. Sierra Club was there representing these yahoos. You know, Center for Biological Diversity was there representing these morons. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all emotional. The dangerous thing, though, and I think they're going back to the playbook, like, uh, and the precedent that it set was, well, they succeeded with wolves, right, with the ballot, ballot initiative. And so that set a precedent. They're like, we know we can prey on the simpletons who sit in their cubicle in Boulder and Denver, the two major uh, population, urban population centers in, in Colorado. We can play on the, uh, you know, the emotional drawstrings here, get them to, to even though they'll never even see any of this wildlife, they're not out there, you know, buying an elk tag. They probably just, you know, live their life uh, 
within a couple square miles of their their house yep. and they don't they don't get out they'll never see these things they don't understand the implications from a financial impact of okay if you wipe out elk herds well who's gonna pay for all of those uh hiking trails if you do get out like where i can go eat my granola on you know like well hunters have always been happy to do that for you we continue to do it if you'll just let us yeah you know and where i was going earlier was they titled it to ban trophy hunting mm -hmm. we what happens when you say trophy hunting uh, you yeah know, like public you know negative uh, stigma attached to that way down drops to like below 30 percent so they're probably going to be able to collect these things pretty quickly and easily using that something for our community to understand a lot of people think it's just ending hound hunting just in yeah. quotes just ending hound hunting for cats it's not it's ending everything trapping hunting of yeah. anything, spot and stock anything it's to kill you know to purposefully kill a mountain lion bobcat lynx whatever um you know they, and you know, the first part if you look at the actual proposal the first part is just complete lies you know it says it trophy hunting is you know for the hide and skull and to display they don't use the meat people are against hunting da, 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 da. therefore let's ban this stuff and mm -hmm. it is a carte blanche ban just slated bill was last year so this would end bobcat mountain lion management in the state of colorado you throw those expanding populations on top of the incoming wolves it's not pretty mm -mm. Mm -mm. yeah i uh i would challenge them with that though because i we ate the entire mountain lion that i shot in colorado and okay. um the outfitter who we spent 18 days together over three trips which i've said on the show many times before um he was happy to help me butcher the cougar. Yeah, it's like any animal, but he's butchered a bunch of them. He's like, yeah. But I said, well, I'd like the heart. He goes, no, 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 no. I don't. Uh, I don't open up the cat. We do everything externally because the inside, the the guts and everything of the cat are about the most unpleasant smell that you could, you know, imagine. And going back to a litter box, I'm like, yeah, okay. But uh, <laughs> I wanted the heart because I was like, I wanted to be able to say, you know, I have the heart of the lion because I ate it. <laughs> and uh he's like i'm not getting the heart for you i said okay so he went to sleep and i stayed out there on the porch and whittled away some of the ribs and i got the heart out and the next morning he walked out there on the porch he's like that son of a bitch took the heart out <laughs> i did and i and i made uh i made mountain lion lo mein with the heart and i fed it to my wife and she got home from work she was like this is so good what is it i said it's oh it's mountain lion heart she goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah well she has the heart of a lioness i guess <laughs> yeah she does to put up with me she sure does um well you but you also talk about or have to think about the the impact on the houndsmen like there is a whole community of people that depend on like the guy that i hunted with like he probably sells five or six uh cougar hunts a year and that's yeah. a lot of money it's a lot of his annual income um, well, the recreational guys i mean uh naomi who works for us works in you know our communications department she's in colorado she's a houndsman she goes out bobcat you know she catches lots of bobcats there is literally no limit on the bobcats in colorado mm -hmm. to keep up with them you know so she's out bobcat so let's hunting. protect them yeah yeah exactly so she's out uh bobcat you know 
chasing cats with her hounds all the time, mountain lions. They kill some of the bobcats every now and then they'll take a mountain lion, but not very often, yeah. you know? Um, but, uh, you know, she's fired up and we're like, okay, slow down. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, you know, and this is what the whole community is doing right now. Like this came out and there's already groups and people jumping out in front and trying to jockey for position. And this is just, everybody's fired up and we all want to do something, but this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? Like, there is a process to this. It's going to be a long process. There, it has to be, you know, go to the uh, the state, a uh, couple of different state uh, offices for the language, and it has to be approved. And then they have to gather the signatures. And then, you know, there, there's a whole process to it. So it's not a sprint that we have to do something next week, mm-hmm. end of October. This is going to be a long process. The biggest key, if and when it does get onto the ballot, is fundraising. I mean, it. I can show you stats, you know, and the Sportsman's Alliance has done ballot initiatives. That's what we were formed on, was fighting initiatives. We know how to do this, and the key is fundraising. It's airtime. It's finding the message, doing the polling, finding the message, and making this happen. Uh, You know, it's it's just going to be a process and it's long. And so everybody just kind of needs to take a deep breath and face this one, one benchmark at a time. But stay fired up at the same time. Yes. Yeah, I mean, stay fired up, stay engaged, yeah. but be orderly. You know, it's kind of like, you know, a fire drill. It's like, okay, everybody get in line and let's head in the right direction and find the exit and go to the safe place. Not everybody running around with their hair on fire, you know, and running into each other. I don't like that term, safe place. Not <laughs> 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 safe space. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, it was one of my favorite singer-songwriters who was sitting here in the studio with me one time. We we're doing an interview, and it was, it was Corey Morrow, and he said, he said, uh, you know what? A lot of what's wrong with society today is that people don't understand that they don't have the right to not be offended that like, so basically safe spaces it's, it's they don't exist. Like you're going to, some things in life are going to offend you and you don't have a right to just pretend like I can't say something just because you might not like it. Yeah. So get over it. If you don't like it, don't participate. You don't, you don't have to do what I do. You don't have to believe what I believe, but you don't have a right to uh, suppress my freedom of thought or expression just because it offends you. So, and that's what animal rights activists are generally is they're looking for the safe space. Um, and then now we have this, this, this battle, uh, the marathon on our hands in Colorado. So we shall see how it plays out. I do, uh, I do fear that if it does make it to the ballot initiative, we're going to, we might be having this conversation next November and be like, well, we did everything we could, but you know, it, yeah, it is it, what it is. It'll be tough. I mean, the wolf thing, it barely passed. Yeah barely passed um so we'll see with this you know what happens and if that title changes or whatever else you know we'll see you know it it doesn't look good though as Mm. far as the trajectory of colorado and you know where they've already gone and how they align closely with kind of washington you know and we'll see what happens there with wolves and going from one state to another it's uh it's interesting 
and it's not uh not pleasant Mm-mm. Mm-mm. well as far as uh joining sportsman's alliance you guys which every time we talk i just want to reiterate you know uh you guys keep your t- your your finger on the pulse of anti hunting anti second amendment anti trapping anti dog hunting dog owning legislation that is going on in all 50 states and it's a tireless job um but uh we we certainly rely and depend on on groups like sportsman's alliance to be our our watchdog uh and you you can become a member for 35 dollars a year so i encourage folks to do that as well yeah no it's uh that's you know, like I said, uh, the ballot initiatives take money, lawsuits take money. We've got a lawsuit in California right now that was just heard in the Ninth Circuit. We are uh, Washington against the game commissioner, Lorna Smith. We won that and settled with her, and then she appealed it. So that's going to the Supreme Court in Washington State. Uh, we've got two or three federal lawsuits dealing with public lands and uh, and hounds. It's... Uh, you know, $35 doesn't seem like much, but when you get a whole bunch of guys together with $35 or $50 or a hundred, whatever, we have different levels. It adds up and allows us to do more things and protect more places at, at the same time. So any support, donations to the Legal Defense Fund, membership, if you're in the outdoors business, it's a write-off, you know, and a lot of it is uh, depending on which you go to the foundation of the Alliance, it can be a write-off for you. So any support is welcome. It's right there on the website, sportsmens, M-E-N-S, sportsmensalliance.org. And follow us on social media to help get the word out on some of these topics. Right on, my friend. I appreciate the time as always. Thank you. Great to be good, here. Good luck this fall. Thank you. You too, bud. So there he goes, Brian Lynn of Sportsmen's Alliance. Always great checking in with our old friend. That segment of the show brought to you by Stealth Cam and the Deceptor cellular camera you can find the deceptor uh which by the way has the best nighttime no glow images on the market you can find the uh, deceptor and their entire lineup of cellular cameras right there at stealthcam.com unfortunately we are out of time for today thanks to both of our guests brian lynn as well as robin rikers of texas parks and wildlife uh thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible thanks to you the listener for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Road again.